This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, The Langoliers, Part 2. When we first flew through the time rip, everyone on board the plane that was awake disappeared. We're all awake now. Therefore, logic suggests that we try to fly through the rip again awake. We too disappear. That's all. That is all? That's bloody all? What are we supposed to do about it? Welcome to an after-Halloween continuum drag. The podcast that sounds like Rice Krispies and milk. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Nothing's real. <laughs> I have nothing. I have a blank on my notes that says what's real and then a question mark. I don't know. You know who who probably knows what's real? Steve. Uh, on that note, we're joined by returning guest Steve this week. Steve, thanks for coming back for part two of The Langoliers. I'm super happy to be here at the podcast can't say that i'm delighted to have watched the first or second half of this this stephen king television gem but thank you for having me at least guys well we did this last week but let's let's chat with you quickly about this what did you know about the langoliers before settling into this series um very little actually i think uh you know i'm a few years younger than jane i know she was she had eagerly anticipated this cbs or premiere event uh, that was on television, but I was not uh, not cognizant of this. I think uh, I am a, a fan of Stephen King, and I was sort of a fan of Stephen King when I was a younger gentleman, but this has no history for me. This has no sort of connection. I'm not drawn to it at all. I do like Bronson Pinoche. Pincho? Pincho? Pinoche? Yeah. I used to call him Pinoche, which I know is incorrect. So, um, <laughs> he hates that. He hates being compared he, to Pinoche. <laughs> I uh, I can't say I like him. Let, let, I'll take a renege on that. But I did always like Perfect Strangers, and I do kind of still get misty eyed when I hear Standing Tall. Like it's it's a hell of a start to a television show, and there was something charming about it. I think at the time watching Perfect Strangers, everyone was a real Balky fan. Mm. But looking back, I'm more of a Corson Larry fan now. Co- co- cousin Larry? Yeah, but he always called him Corson Larry. Does he call him Corson Larry? Yeah. I want to go back and watch it because I remember the two. You know, the two girlfriends, mm-hmm. uh, one of them was, you know, high and squeaky and maybe a little dipsy. You have to have Di- that in a sitcom. You have to have a woman with a high and squeaky voice. It's comedy gold. Yeah. I think that was all Dharma and Greg was. Was it Dharma and Greg? It was just all the other ones? The high-pitched friend? They have that other show, the nerd show, Nerd Time. What's it called? Mm. The one that's popular. It's just it big, went off the Big air. Bang Theory? That's the one. Oh, that's right. Uh, Jennifer, Jessica, the wife. Yeah, I don't know. God, pop culture. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in (laughs) to Jordan and Steve's Perfect Strangers podcast. The podcast about perfect strangers. We should watch all of it. Do you remember in the later seasons, they all moved into a house together? I sure do. Now, was that the spinoff? No, Family Matters was the spinoff of Perfect Strangers. Is that right? Yeah, because they worked at a mail. They work at the mail or newspaper or something, right? Yeah. And there was a security guard. Played by mm. the lead from Family Matters. Steve, let's see how long we can go before Luke's head pops. <laughs> oh, Luke, I'm you... fine. You guys can just keep going forever. I've checked out. <laughs> Look, Family Matters has a lot of sci-fi stuff in it. You guys could totally do some continuum drag on, you know, Steve Arkell. The and... robot. 
the robot that he forms. Doesn't he do, do the fly machine at some point? Or is I'm that sure what he makes does. that's what makes Stefan Urkel, perhaps? <laughs> I'm not sure. It's worth All going right. back. <laughs> well, you guys, before we get into uh, the Langoliers this week, which we've apparently forgotten that's what we're doing, perhaps on purpose. Well. Um, why don't we play a little game I've made for you and Steve? Ooh. And by you, I mean Jordan. Not the listener. <laughs> What's the game? What's the game? The game is called Make Out on a Plane, Sacrifice Yourself for, or Feed to the Langoliers. Lovely. Steve, this is a classic spin on an old uh, childhood favorite, maybe? I don't know. Mm. Well, I'm going to give you three characters, and you're going to tell me which of them you will do those three things with. So just to confirm, we had make out on a plane. Yes. And then what was the second one? Sacrifice yourself for. Sacrifice myself for. Yes. And then feed to the Langoliers. Correct. Okay, so someone ends up dead in two out of these three scenarios. Listen, nobody gets to stay together in the Langoliers world alive for very long. Okay. All right. Here is your first category. Men who are their jobs. <laughs> Bob Jenkins, mystery writer. A Captain Brian Angle, pilot. And Nick Hopewell, MI6 agent. Now we're going with character, not actor, right? Character, not actor. Okay, all right. Jeez, if I had to make out with somebody, I guess a handsome SAS agent. Um, Nick sharp Hopewell? Nose. Yes, Nick Hopewell. God, I'd never forgive myself if I let the mystery writer uh, die. So I'd have to sacrifice my, for myself for him. And then definitely feed to the Langoliers uh, David Morse. Wow. Whatever Captain, his character is, yeah. Captain Brian Engel, I would say the least offensive character of the world, but not <laughs> to you. Well, we can get into that because, uh, yeah, we can talk about that. There's there's hints to his past in ep- in episode two of the Langoliers. All right, Jordan, what do you think? What's his name? Nick? Who's the guy who grabs the people of the nose? Nick Hopewell. <laughs> He's getting thrown off the plane. And then uh, I'm going to make out with the mystery writer because, yeah. of qu- because of Quantum Leap. And then the other guy's the pilot, right? Yep. yep. I guess I'll sacrifice for him because he's the most important person. All right. Next category. I'm here too. <laughs> uh, your options are Don Gaffney, Rudy Warwick, or Albert Costner. I don't even remember who any of these characters are. (laughs) Uh, Don Gaffney is the man going to visit his granddaughter. Rudy Warwick is the hungry man. And Albert Costner is the child who plays the violin. Right. He's not a child. He's a 30-year-old man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Who wore socks and sandals for the entire entire film. What a look. I guess he was on a plane, a red eye, right? So wanted to be comfortable. Steve, it seemed uh, to work for him, though, didn't it? Yeah, it, he, got the, <laughs> he got one of the girls at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Don Gaffney, he was played by stalwart actor from Silence of the Lambs, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's make out with him. He seemed, he seemed nice enough. Feed to the Langoliers, the guy that was hungry all the time, that really did nothing. He was supposed to be watching Belky at some point, and then he just left him. And, and then there was a stabbing spree. So, yeah, forget that guy. And then I'd sacrifice myself for the little kid. You know, <laughs> anybody that can play violin is, is impressive to me. So, Jordan, agree or disagree? I mean, I don't have any strong opinions on this. <laughs> <laughs> but they're here, too. 
I'll kiss Violin Boy. I'll throw off old uh, uh, Hungry Hippo and uh, and who's left? <laughs> Don uh, Gaffney. That would be Don Gaffney. I guess I'm saving myself for Don Gaffney. I still don't remember who he is. He's an airplane dying tool worker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll mm. save him. He seems nice. People need tool and die workers. <laughs> All right. Next category. Everyone needs a love interest. Uh, this will be the female characters from the pilot because there are, are the show. There's not many. You can go with Laurel Stevenson, the teacher, mm-hmm. Bethany Sims, maybe a drug addict. And I'm not putting a child in this mix, so your third option is a Langolier itself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. I was a little worried there as we were stepping down, uh, going down that You guys know hole. you don't have to choose to kiss the child, right? <laughs> you can throw her off the plane. That's what I'm doing. She was the least likable character. You can throw her off the plane. She's not going to know when the ground's coming, am I right? Oh, oh. She's blind. Well, she's not there. It's yeah. just a lady langolier. It's got a little bow on its head. Oh. So I guess if I throw the langolier to the langoliers, they don't yes. eat her? No, that's allowed. They'll eat them. Oh, okay. All right. All right. You can also make out with a langolier. It's totally fine. I don't think you want to. No. The, they did have three lips, though, I guess. So that would kind of be interesting for a few seconds. This is more difficult than it should be. Okay. I guess I would make out with the school teacher and then... Uh, sacrifice myself for the young drug addict which seems like a weird sentence i didn't think i'd say and then uh sacrifice or uh feed to the langolier the female langolier see how they like it <laughs> jordan what am i gonna do i'll kiss the, the school teacher i'll throw uh the not drug addict lady off the plane and and i'm sacrificing for someone i guess i'll sacrifice for the uh <laughs> the because i just want it to eat everything I, I looked it up it eats all earthly matter <laughs> well it definitely does yeah all right one last category and we can get on with the show you guys ready i hope it's a perfect strangers category <laughs> the category is crazy town nice you can uh choose between craig toomey uh Mr. Uh, Pinochet himself, (laughs) Roger Toomey, his father, or Tom Holby, the boss, played by Stephen King. Mm. By the way, this was a bit of a chubby year for Stephen King, huh? Yeah, this was when, 95? I guess I just got used to seeing what Stephen King looks like now, and I was like, ah, Stephen King. He's like twice the size. Yeah, he's quite big, and the haircut is terrible. (laughs) It was a bad time. yeah, he was just getting clean at this point. He was cleaning mm. up his act in the And he hadn't 90s. been hit by a van yet, so he's <laughs> no, that better was, health. <laughs> that was 99, I think, that he got hit. So, um, well, let's kill the dad. He's terrible. I agree with and, you. And, and painful to watch. All right, so that's a perfect agreement there. Yeah. Good, good. You know, Stephen King has more to give, so I would sacrifice myself for Stephen King, and I guess that means I'm kissing Belky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board with you too. I'm I'm on for all those. We, we're gonna have to fight each other to kiss Belky. Okay. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. <laughs> He's got two cheeks. Yep. Yeah. Finally, a, ca- a category you can both agree on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that wraps up. Make out on a plane with, sacrifice yourself for, or feed to the Langoliers. This is lovely. What, pl- ways I didn't expect this to start, guys. I gotta say. All right. Here is the IMDb summary for The Langoliers Part 2. I've edited this down a little, but you'll get the gist of it. A blind girl, a teacher, a machine worker, a musician, a stoner, a mystery writer, a businessman, a mysterious Englishman, and a raving psychopath in a business suit 
discover that they seem to be the only people left on Earth, and that time and the Langoliers are catching up with them all too quickly. There's too many characters, huh? <laughs> I really like this summary because he just like listed every character by their one trait. <laughs> so this all starts off, we're hearing the sound of the Langoliers over many shots of an empty airport to let, remind us what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you mean the sound of coked up termites in a balsa wood lighter? Yes, that was one description of them. Is that what they said? Yeah. Yeah. Who was it? Hungry Man, I think, maybe? Yep. Walks in, says his line, walks out. Coked up termites in a balsa wood lighter. I don't even know what that is. Why a lighter? I think it was flyer. Okay, that's what I thought. And then Jane said it was a lighter. And I'm like, okay, because they're on fire. And so they're they're on fire and coked up. So they're they're just moving. They're moving quick. No, no, you were right, Steve. It was fly. <laughs> All right. Um, and we kind of get a quick scene here at the start to kind of, ca- I guess, catch us up with what's up with these Langoliers because we see uh, old old Craig Toomey. He's been uh, tied up on the floor after trying to shoot somebody. They've tied his hands up. He's laying on the ground of this restaurant. And uh, Blind Girl Dinah is, like, asking him all about what he thinks these Langoliers are. And he's explaining about his childhood and his dad, his dad saying Langoliers eat lazy people. But my favorite part is, as Craig Toomey starts having a conversation with them, he just starts, like, there's just all these shots of him, like, rolling over on the ground. He's just, like, <laughs> like he's rolling down a hill or something. And when he's finished the conversation, he just rolls back to where he was previously. <laughs> he also, I think he ramps up his energy every roll. Like, like He's a, more and more excited. More and more excited. Just starts yelling at this small child about the Langoliers and about his father. And that teacher does not intervene. <laughs> no. We mentioned it before, I think, in the last episode. But clearly he wants to be big. The director wants him to be big. But it's so annoying to the point where you just want him off the screen every time he's on. At least that's how I feel. It's just it's to the point where it's like I'm not getting the idea that he's unhinged. I'm getting the idea that I want to turn this off. Yeah, it, <laughs> You're not even rewarded, spoiler alert, with his death at the end. Like, it's it's not even enjoyable watching him finally die. It's just that feeling of, like, when will you leave the screen? When will this be over? That's because the only thing that would be justified is someone walking in while he's screaming. They go, excuse me, shh. And he goes, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Was I yelling the whole time? And I say, yes, you were yelling. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. And then he's just quiet. That would be the end <laughs> he needs. Just stands there quietly on yeah, the tarmac. exactly. I mean, I, I see where you're all coming from. I will say that I mostly just look forward to his scenes because at least something with energy was happening for two seconds. <laughs> That's true. Everyone else sleepily walks through this film. He's the only one uh, up to anything, it felt like. Um, but anyway, well, well, Belky's telling this kid all about Langoliers, we cut away to the uh, rest of the team, and Captain Angle's talking about how they need 100,000 pounds of fuel to get back to that time rip in order to get home again. But, of course, as we remember, we're in a world where nothing works anymore. Um, so they're, they're like, you know, standing around wondering what they're going to do about this terrible world they live in with some sort of terrible sound coming towards them. And it's at this point that Albert, the violinist, has an idea. And he, like the mystery author, doesn't want to explain his idea. He kind of forces them all to, like, travel back to the plane with him and stand around while he just, like, executes what he thinks is going to be his idea. To be fair, this movie could use more of that, a little more show and a little less tell, because the characters just talk and talk and talk. So I was fine with the old, hold on, let's just, uh, let's watch some beer recarbonate itself. 
it's like the a terrible version of the ending of Clue. You guys remember Clue, where where they're running around explaining how everything happened, and they run to the different rooms. It's like that. It's like, guys, I have an idea about the plane. Everybody, let's go. And they just slowly walk to the plane, and you watch them walk in real time and climb up the stairs and go inside and open the beer bottle. It's even boring me explaining it, and then it's even worse having to watch them do it. You can tell they have they have four hours to kill. <laughs> yes, they, they reboard this plane. Albert opens a bottle of beer, and slowly but surely, it re-gets its carbonation back. It gets all fizzy again. It looked cool, though. Yeah, it was not a bad effect, um, and it's partly because apparently if you get on the plane, it's still traveling around with a pocket of, like, present time, so it takes a few seconds, but anything you bring back on there will kind of get its mojo back, I suppose, yeah. or as he says as he opens a can of pop that is now no longer flat, gentlemen, the cola is very good today. <laughs> I knew there was going to be some sort of answer for this, and I knew it was going to be funny, and he didn't disappoint me. I love the idea that the plane brought its own time with it. It made me laugh. That's that was my, I think, my favorite thing. It's just, it's like magic. That's why. I mean, it makes the most sense of everything that's been happening, I suppose. It's true. Yeah. It's true. You just cap, it's like an air pocket. It's just caught in the plane. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. But back inside the airport after everyone's basically left to go watch liquid get carbonation back they've kind of left a few people behind to do a jo- to watch to me or as you as you said steve the the hungry man has been left to stand over this apparently sleeping madman um and he does a bad job of it the worst job because after he's just like tommy are you asleep all right i'm gonna take a little wander uh to gets up easily wriggles out of the uh the job they've done tying him to the ground and he grabs a, grabs a fish knife and hides in the in the old restaurant and blind girl Dinah's shining powers kick in, and she immediately is aware of the fact that Toomey is not really asleep. They travel back into that restaurant to look for him, and probably the best sequence of this movie, in my opinion, is everyone's just like, uh-oh, Toomey's run away, and no one attempts to stop the little girl from, like, approaching the part of the kitchen where she's just like, he's over here, I can hear his heart beating. But, no, like, nobody stops her. They just let her wander toward a madman. <laughs> Can we can we stop here for a second and talk about this young girl? So it, within like the first 10 minutes of of the first episode or the first TV movie, they do a sequence where she's able to see through other people's eyes. Yes. Right? And then that never gets touched on again. And then in the first 10 minutes of episode 2, when she walks in and claims that she can hear the heartbeat, she puts her hands up beside her ears and cups them. To create radar dishes, you guys saw that, right? Yeah, so you can hear better. Everyone yeah. knows that you, if you put your, you do that, you can have much better hearing. First of all, that's insane. Second of all, like, when did she become really hokey daredevil? They hinted at it in the first episode. But why not go back to the original thing, the shining vision that you set up, and like have it's that? Not very good. It's terrible, but at least <laughs> it would be consistent, right? Like. You know, and then because she even talks to Toomey in in the first conversation, and she's like, "I'm not like you see me, right? Like I'm not ugly like that. I'm just a little girl." But like that was two fucking hours ago, <laughs> in in a different on a different day of the week on whatever channel we're watching. Like, why not show that again? I'm not like you see me. Flash to what I look like. I'm a little girl. See, like, show that shit. That whole concept that Toomey sees them as some sort of melted wax figures from the first part of this 
yeah, it's truly never returned to. And what it has to do with anything, like, I guess it's just, I guess we're just supposed to think he has a mental illness. Well, it, yeah, he does. He, he He's clearly abused. And, and in the book, um, or in the novella, he actually, you, you know, it's a character study, right? It's just six people. They delve into their backstories. They delve into their mental wellness and their histories. And, you know, it goes into his father and his mother being both abusive in different ways. But why not just pepper that in a little bit, right? Like, you know, have Toomey, when he sees his dad, flash between just a regularly ugly man and a melting wax figure. Like, you know, have some consistency. Have some style. Do anything in this train wreck of a of a show. It's an interesting point you make, though. If there's one thing, and it's hard to qualify exactly what it is, but this TV movie does not have any style at all. Because it's a straight, uh, at least I assume, a pretty direct straight adaptation of the book or novella, mm-hmm. it's just right off the page. But there's no real care taken to give it any anything other than these characters show up, they say the lines, they move over here, they say the lines. And so it just, it always feels flat. Yeah, it's a direct adaptation. I just recently revisited the source material. It is a direct adaptation of all of the action and none of the insight. You know, if somebody's thinking about something or remembering their past, they cut that shit out and just did the action. And it is... It's and almost it unwatchable. Almost <laughs> unwatchable. Oh. Well, let's get back to poor blind girl uh, Dinah. As she gets closer and closer to Toomey in the restaurant, he finally pops out of his hiding place and runs at her, stabbing that fish knife directly <laughs> into her chest, breaking the blade off in her chest, and then, like, scurries away into the airport. He really made it count. Yeah. This is a pre-9-11 world where they were just deboning fish knives, uh, just lying around everywhere. And guns. In the first one, there's a gun. A gun oh, just sitting right. around. Yeah. I will say, I hadn't expected to see the little girl stabbed in the chest. I mean, the effect is TV bad, but it was still very funny to see a small child stabbed on television. I, you don't see that too often. <laughs> you love it. That's what you always say of all these shows. You're like, how come they don't have a kid getting stabbed? It always surprises me. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't put the little kid in the kissing game, but he's just dying to see her get stabbed in the chest. <laughs> It's uh, that's what kids are good for getting stabbed. Oh, taking a dark turn. Um, I don't know. It was it was well, at least one part in this show where I'm like, well, didn't see that one coming. Yeah. And I do love that like every adult with her, a doesn't even attempt to protect her, and b lets that man just run away, and they all just stand around screaming like, oh no, she's been stabbed. That's everybody's reaction is just oh no, just whatever happens. Oh no. All right, moving on. Does anyone else think it's interesting though that? So much time is spent on Toomey, and they, you know, obviously really want to make him this villain that you hate. And it's not only has he tried shooting someone, he's now stabbed a little girl, and he's screaming all the time, and he's like as bad as you can be. But is this needed for the story at all? Like, isn't the tension that time is catching up to them, and they might die, or they might have to be stuck in this purgatory forever? Isn't that enough stakes? I just felt like, why do we have to add this? big bad villain in the movie where isn't the scenario bad enough as it is am i the only one who felt that way in the novella he's a much more interesting character he's a bit more of like a hulking yuppie right and he's he's actually compared in the written piece to like a deep sea fish that kind of thrives under pressure and he he's like self-sabotaging himself 
you get this whole backstory of how he's bought into these Argentinian land bonds and stuff like that. And then it's his evil uh, juxtaposed with the blind girl's good. And they have this this thing at the end, you know, which is ridiculous in the sh- in the TV movie. But he ends up saving them all, right? He kind of sacrifices himself. He's redeemed. It, it's maybe worth it. That may all be true, but that's not we're not reading the book we're watching this tv show so in this tv show they've made no adjustment and so you have as i'm saying this scary scenario but now you also have this cartoon character running around doing bad things like does he even need to be in this no it's wily e. coyote you know running around stabbing little girls like it's it's redonkulous so do you need it no did we need any of this? No. <laughs> oh, fair I enough. mean, that's, I mean, that is the hard part. It's just like, do we need that? Like, I'm like, do we need, yeah. Do we need any part of this, this direct adaptation? No. Clearly not. This was a, this is a 30 minute to hour long Twilight Zone episode. That's it. They go back in time. They figure out they're back in time. They get back on the plane. They jump too far forward. Then they like, that's it. You didn't need it. It didn't need to be four hours of my life. <laughs> Yeah, I think you brought that up last week, Jordan, too, like how this could be very easily edited down. And I think you're right. If you were to edit it down, that would be the you'd cut out to me and you just have this show about four people trying to survive this weird circumstance. Yeah. Or you have to but he just goes crazy and runs off into the distance like that's it. There doesn't need to be a, a psychic ghost battle at the end. And, you know, it's Nintendo 64 graphics, but... <laughs> At any rate, we'll get back to where we were, is that after she's been stabbed, everyone kind of returns to the restaurant to take care of her. Hitman Nick is, uh, he's going to do some surgery to pull that knife, that knife blade out of her chest, which I was sad we didn't get to see more of. I thought there was going to be an actual surgery, but I think he just like yanks it out with a pair of pliers or something. I really hope I never get stuck in a scenario where someone's like, you always see it in TV where like, oh no, someone's got to perform a surgery and someone else walks them through it or something. I really hope in my life I never have to uh, do an emergency surgery on the side of the road <laughs> or anything. I don't think I'd be very good at it. You think you'd be doing the surgery, not the one having the surgery done on you? No, no, I'd be the one doing the surgery. They'd be like, oh, okay, it's time to do a tracheotomy. And you're like, get that knife. And I'm like, uh-oh. And they're like, Jordan, that's not their throat. That's their, I don't know, butthole. Because <laughs> I can't Jordan, tell the difference between a throat and a butthole. Yeah. You got to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> at, th- at this point, I also hope you are not the one doing the surgery. <laughs> you have convinced me. Uh, as, as he's doing this surgery with the knife out, he sends Albert, the violinist, and Don Gaff- Gafferty, Gafferty the, the dye and tool worker, down to find a stretcher. And it's very funny because uh, Albert's just like, Toomey's out there. I have to make a weapon to defend us. And what's the weapon he chooses to make? <laughs> he puts a toaster an old two slice metal toaster in a um, a tablecloth and rolls it up to make i guess some sort of mace or uh uh morning star i guess a morning star is a better mm-hmm. better so you mentioned it was a two slice would you have preferred it be a four slice um no no two <laughs> slice is good it's it's more round the four slice you get square it's less mm. uh, aerodynamic so yeah it's it's the most insane weapon and again, in the uh, semi-superior novella, he realizes that about halfway through his enca- engagement with uh, Toomey. He's like, oh, oh, I've made a terrible choice. <laughs> Should I also mention that Toomey up to this point has found both a gun and a knife, and this guy has found a toaster. Does, yeah. And a third knife, right? Doesn't he collect, he collects a third knife in the Yeah, he, he will later have another knife. You're right. Yeah. I also was just like, what? what is this weapon you've put together here? Like, if you were to ask me, like, defend yourself... I think the last place I'd end up is like toaster in a tablecloth. Yeah. 
Because if you're in a kitchen, there are other things. Also, toasters have a built-in string. Like, they have a cord. That's true. You could just, just swing it by that. I would personally have grabbed a frying pan for that classic cartoon bonk when I hit him in the head. Yeah, or both. Frying pan in one hand, toaster in the mm-hmm. other. Like, shield and weapon. Yeah. So, can we just touch on Toomey's paper ripping? I don't know how much you got into that. We discussed it briefly last week that Tommy's constantly, if he's by himself, he calms himself by ripping up pieces of paper to like shred it. He shreds it essentially. Yeah. Now that's, that's what I took away when reading the novella. I didn't, he didn't look calm to me. That was an ejaculatory face that he was making <laughs> when he was ripping. It. Like you that would is, know. I would know. Um, <laughs> Zoom is fantastic. Anyways, um, it's really too much sexual. It's like a self hypnosis thing that it should be, right? It should be. He's trying to escape the internal torment of his father and this fear of the Langoliers, and so he's ripping paper. But Wouldn't it be great if like, at the end he was just making, like, paper mache Oh, so it, was, it was all a dream? And he's yeah. just at home making pa- Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Little people and an airport mm-hmm. out of paper mache I wouldn't put it past Stephen King. I'm like, that's the ending? Uh, he's actually a writer who also makes dioramas about the things that he mm-hmm. is writing. That would be the great twist if everyone on the plane was a writer. <laughs> uh, but get, getting back to where we were, uh, Albert and Don are sent to go find this stretcher. Albert's got his toaster tablecloth weapon. And as they sort of like walk down to the main part of the ho- airport, they're like, where should we find a uh, stretcher? And they immediately walk into the one room that Tommy's hiding in. Like, it's a massive airport that could go anywhere. But the first place you walk to is the exact place that Tommy's hiding in. <laughs> Which, in fact, did have a stretcher. Did have a stretcher. First, so first like place you look. Two birds. And as soon as they walk in, old Don Gaffney, he's getting stabbed to death immediately. <laughs> <laughs> With the tiniest knife, get perfectly placed right in the spine, I guess. And he is done like dinner. At, right you're right. right. He shouldn't have been a businessman. He should have been a professional stabber. <laughs> Albert's out there. He's swinging his toaster at Toomey. He likes... He managed to smash Toomey in the head with it a couple times. You know, Toomey gets up, classic serial killer style. You, you can't keep him down. He's like Freddy Krueger or something. This is the worst Star Trek fight not in Star Trek. Like, <laughs> if you put the... Dun, 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 but, like, they're circling each other, right? He's got the knife, and he's talk, like he's getting quips at him. He's spinning this toaster and thing. It's horrific. It's so bad. Well, and it's so bad, too, because when he finally hits him in the head and knocks him out, there's like a little trickle of blood coming out of Toomey's head. And Albert's so distraught by that little trickle, he pukes. I'm like, you didn't kill him, man. You barely hit, you gently nudged him with a toaster. Word for word from the the novella, but entirely edited for television. In the book, his head is caved in. Right. Like, he he is destroyed in the book. His nose is broken. It's king, right? So it's gore. I was going to say that is, like, the biggest problem with this part of the movie because this is where all the violence comes in. There is no mm-hmm. weight to any of the action, no weight to any of the violence. Like, so none of it feels exciting or interesting or even, like, final. Like, it just feels like someone tapped a man in the head with a toaster and he fell down. And you're like – and you're, all the characters react like something terrible has happened. But you yourself yeah. have just watched the laziest choreographed fight that it just it's it's just so tough because it's like what it like I don't feel any weight to anything that's happening. I think you're right because it doesn't really have any weight. You never at any point think he's dead, so you don't have that feeling of oh they finally got him. It's like no, they just tapped him and he's down, and we're just delaying again 
to extend this already extended story a little bit longer. I can't understand why someone came in with this pitch and said, you know, okay, so it's six people in an airport. There's a murderer who ends up stabbing a little girl who ends up becoming a ghost. And then a, this kid who's a former or who's a violinist caves his head in with a, a toaster in a, in a sack. And then at the end, these ping pong balls with teeth absorb the entire planet. And they're like, yes, let's put that on television over two nights. I was like, why? Why did you think that was a good idea? This is a rated R, you know, special effects giant movie. Like, this is post-Jurassic Park, right? It was like 95. I mean, what made you think that you could put this on network television? Oh, this is better be than good? Jurassic Park. <laughs> well, the story is, but <laughs> the special effects. I think, Steve, unfortunately, this comes down to it's like, oh, you we going to slap Stephen King's name on it and do a bunch of promo? I think they cared less about the movie and more about the promotion they could do. Well, I wonder if somebody would, like, if Bronson brought them to the, like, he brought it to the network. You think or, Bronson you know, Pinchot brought this to the network? <laughs> he was he was big. He'd done Beverly Hills Cop, Boat 1 and 2. You know, he had he had clout in Hollywood at This the is time. what I want to do I next. <laughs> anyway, uh, we should get on with this because there's so much to get through. Uh, there's a, is there? There's a whole scene here where Nick... <laughs> <laughs> Nick wants to go down and like kill old Toomey now that he's down, but the little girl's like, "You, she's barely conscious after being stabbed." She tells him, "You can't kill him because we still need him." So, so Nick has to like have a scene where he's almost gonna smother the character, but like hears her voice in his head. I'm gonna make an argument real quick, and we come back to it at the end. I don't think they do need Toomey. Well, I mean, that's just it, right? It's just like there's this whole scene where it's just like, "Don't kill him, we need him." Do you? You need him for the rest of the book you want to adapt, but that's about it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they they grab the stretcher, toss it, toss old uh, Diana, uh, Dinah on it, and take her onto the plane. And they finally get started with the process of uh, refueling this plane, which they promise us is going to take at least two hours. And I'm like, oh good, <laughs> don't real worry, t- we'll, we'll see it in real time. Yeah, real time, rehooking the cables. <laughs> all the, turn that thing. Okay, now switch that light off. Can we also just say David Morse seems totally disinterested in all of the goings on? He's very much in his role of, like, flip switch, turn dial. <laughs> but we remember his reaction when his wife died. They're like, your wife died. And he's like, well, that's a thing. Love the guy. Put him in as a, a right-hand man or something like that. But he has no range whatsoever. I mean, I don't think you can blame anyone in this movie for uh, their acting. <laughs> Belky's got range. It's 11. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone in this was told, dial it down, except for him. It was t- they were told, dial it up. <laughs> <laughs> dial it up. You know, he walked on set and he said, everyone stand away. I'm going to do my thing. <laughs> Dean Stockwell is showing up at least. Like you, mm-hmm. I mean, he's basically just playing his his character from Quantum Leap, explaining everything to a bunch of people who have jumped through time. But... I'll bring this up now then since you're bringing it up. Dean Stockwell is pretty much the lead character in the first part. And then when part two starts, you do not see or hear from him for like an hour <laughs> of the film. He like disappears yeah, from the weird. movie. Yeah. As soon as he explains we've gone back in time, he is removed from this movie. <laughs> well, it's because if you went back to him, we were like, he's just sitting in the cafe and he's still talking to people about time. <laughs> That's what they should do. Just keep checking in. And then and then they, the camera pulls out and they see he's actually just sitting there by himself. <laughs> so as they fill this plane up, this is like this. This is like where this book adaptation comes in. And it's just insane. But like they're like they've they've hooked it up. The fuel's going on. And then we cut away and Nick the hitman sidles up to Laurel, Laurel the teacher and it's like, 
hey, you want to go on a date sometime? And she's like, you know what? I've also <laughs> been feeling a connection to you that we haven't seen yeah. on screen. Let's go on a date when we get back I to Boston. I love it. It's it's so shoehorned in. It's hilarious. And again, you know, to Steve Steve's point about the adaptation, it's clearly in the book. They want to put it in, but it doesn't need to be or work in this adaptation at all. But they're like, we got to do it. It's in the book. And it's just like, guys, we, anyone's watching this because it's a cool idea and you want to see how this cool idea is developed and then resolved. No one cares <laughs> about this stupid love story and they just jam yeah. it in. I will bring one thing up, though, because I, originally I was just like, why would she go on a date with this violent, clearly violent man who all she's seen him do is be like angry and like grab people's noses? But if you recall, Jordan, last week with Jane, we discussed how she was on a trip to Boston to meet a man she'd met via like... Uh, yeah. like correspondence who we were all sure was going to be a serial killer who was going to murder her anyway <laughs> i actually think now her character is just into violent killers she like she met this man she's like well now i don't need to fly to boston to get murdered this man can do it for me right here <laughs> i think she might just be maybe not a good judge of character <laughs> what's interesting is in the in the book she starts to fall for him during the surgery scene <laughs> so his command presence saving that little girl yelling at people is when she's like oh he's really handsome i oh you know maybe maybe i'm attracted to him anyway let's get back to these langoliers because in the distance finally we start seeing something <laughs> those uh electrical line towers that have been over this hill they would keep seeing these hydro towers mounting a hill where the sound's coming from they start to sway and collapse and like it's actually some really good miniature work here as we see like something in the forest like collapsing trees and collapsing these power lines as we see something well it just something's happening finally and so you finally i actually thought that miniature work was pretty good like it like looked kind of fun and interesting and of course as the langlers get closer i guess Dinah's shining powers get even stronger because she starts to astral project into the airport to talk to Toomey, who we know is not quite dead yet, laying on the ground of the air uh, the airport. You mean that cut on his forehead did not kill him? Apparently not. <laughs> that old wrestler's nick to the, to the <laughs> scalp? She, she goes there and starts chatting with him and sort of commanding him to get up and go outside because his business meeting has moved from Boston to the airport in Bangor. And uh, he's originally, initially very reluctant to get off off the floor. But as soon as Dinah questions his manhood, he's up and on his feet in no time. <laughs> Which makes sense if you had a hulking, yuppie, you know, kind of jockish character. Not so much sense with Valky. <laughs> she should have made fun of what? Mykonos? <laughs> Not Mykonos. That's good. What I did like is they keep cutting from her astral projecting back onto the airplane. The characters on the airplane are looking at this unconscious little girl who's just mumbling in her sleep. And they're all like, well, she's dying. There's no way. But the teacher's just like, no, I think she's probably doing something very important. Remember how she said not to let him die? I bet she's doing something about that. I'm like, wow, that's a real, you're really stretching your imagination here, aren't you, teacher? Yeah. Um, but essentially what, they, what she does is she has old Toomey get back on his feet, crawl out of the airport, onto the tarmac. And we get this insane scene. Like, he's a, he's a murderer to them. He's going to kill them. And what we see is... Toomey doing the craziest run. He runs at the airplane where Bob Jenkins and Albert are standing guard. And those two do nothing. They just stand there watching him run at them until he runs past the airplane. I'm just like, everyone still has no urgency about anything. Like, this guy you know is a murderer is coming at you and you all just casually stand there. 
Well, I mean, his kill count is so high just because there's no defense against him. Like, he goes to stab and they just stand there. He goes to shoot someone, they just stand there. It's an easy to uh, uh, beat up on people that have no defense. I guess Albert and Bob are just waiting to die. They're like, well, here he comes. <laughs> yeah. I think they might have been flabbergasted by how he runs. It was amazing, the right? The fact that he's like, forehead first, do, does not pump the arms. Let's the arms trail behind them as if they had no bones or muscles in them. <laughs> that runs. <laughs> like, I loved it. It's Belky, just pump your arms, man. You're going to go faster. Do you think they told him that they were going to fix it in post with CGI to make him look like a Langolier or something? Like, just act like a Langolier. You have no arms. Yeah, maybe they got bitten off in an earlier cut. And so he was <laughs> running with them, and they're like, we're going to put blood in there as CG. Just go with it. Um, at any rate, he gets out to um, this tarmac and there is a, suddenly a board table appears around it around him on the runway it's surrounded by executives including their boss the the previously mentioned stephen king making a little cameo appearance here which in some of the promo material i was watching online like these like you gotta watch the langoliers this weekend the director said that they shot in bangor maine just so stephen king would show up <laughs> And I'm just like, this is the whole reason you came out here was so that you could get Stephen King to come to set and do this weird role. And you guys, Stephen King has the greatest tiny little mustache. (laughs) It's true. I expected to see him full beard because that's kind of what I remember him from the 80s, that full big bushy beard. So when he appeared and just had this like pencil mustache, I was really blown away. (laughs) He's like, guys, I'll do the mustache. But under one condition, you have to move the entire production to within a kilometer of my house. (laughs) At any rate, uh, you know, this is the part where Tommy explains. He makes a big show about how he lost all their money deliberately. Stephen King does his best to act up a storm here. Uh, it's, he's very smug. It works. Um, and as he's telling them about all this money he's lost, his boss, like, you know, morphs into his abusive father and starts calling him a fool and telling him the Langoliers are coming for you and making like a chomping motion with his hand. And this is when sort of Belky or Toomey returns to reality and like realizes he's just standing in the middle of a, of a tarmac. Because who's finally making their appearance in a movie called the Langoliers? Our stars, the Langoliers. Steve, do you want to describe what the Langoliers look like? Um, so they're definitely ping pong balls with some sort of trifecta mouth, like three three lips. Excellent for kissing, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, with some sort of of like a chainsaw chainsaw teeth. Yes, the teeth are always moving. Sharp. They're in a buzzsaw sort of mm-hmm. way. Yeah, buzzsaw is a better example. Yeah. Now, did he describe them? in the first half as being hairy because i couldn't tell and i know it's it's not entirely fair because the graphics are from you know almost 30 years ago but were they supposed to be hairy or lizard like skin i couldn't really tell on my tv they were lizard like and rippled but he describes them as uh, uh, Toomey describes them as being hairy with tiny little legs Hmm. So I think, yeah, yeah, he doesn't know what Langlers actually look like. That's just what his father described. So uh, if you were expecting mm-hmm. to see what they described in the earlier part, you did not get to see that. A coincidence, really, that they're they're similar in any way, shape, or form. It's true. They were very badly rendered. Yes. I mean, it has more to do with probably the effects of the time. But when they first appear and they like appear on a huge landscape, what you just see is like these little balls, and they're just like eating trails of into the ground like the ground just disappears behind them i guess they eat exactly like pac-man yes yes they're like yeah it's like you're being menaced by a whole bunch of pac-man if they did a horror remake of pac-man this is what it would look like 
Like it's 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 identical. And it would be just so. as scary. <laughs> <laughs> so they finally make an appearance, the thing we've been waiting for for like at this point, like two and a half hours. And I was gonna say it it is kind of disappointing because I think as Jane mentioned at the beginning, there is some loving care given to the the plane at the beginning and the whole sequence of the plane landing. It looks good, some of the miniature work is good. It's just the unfortunate aging of computer-generated effects that they just look bad and that they chose. Not that I think having some sort of ping-pong ball flying around would have looked that much better, but in terms of looking back now from 2020, the effect just does not age as well as some of the other ones in the movie. Yeah. No, for sure. It, it is it is sad to see that the Langoliers, when they finally show up, are... I mean, they're disconcerting to look at, but not for the reasons they want them to be. <laughs> Right, right. And it's the fact they didn't make one. Like, if you had just made one, one prop that was actually real. Yeah, for close-ups or for, like, an attack on Toomey. But, you know, the problem is they're like, well, we've got computers now. We can just make it all CG. And it looks terrible. And it and it, it looked terrible then, and it looks terrible now. It's the it's not the age. It's, it's bad mm. because they didn't put any effort into making something real. And then... Again, it's not rewarding at all when they're eating things, yes. even when they eat Toomey, because it's Scooby-Doo. It's Scooby-Doo violence. They cut away. Well, that's what happens you know. here is Toomey sort of takes off running from two of these Langoliers. He runs mm-hmm. past the plane, and they chase him down. And then I guess, like, you're, I think you're supposed to think maybe one of them bites off his legs, and he's forced to crawl. Yeah. But it's all off screen. Yeah, it's, it's all off screen. And it, again, in the book, it's King, right? So it's got some gore to it. They They— Basically, Buzz saw his feet off first, and then he's crawling away, and they devour him from the, the stumps all the way up. So let me just jump in real quick. So the whole point here, and I don't think we mentioned that, Dinah says, we need Toomey because he's going to save us. And the way Toomey's going to save them is he's going to delay the Langoliers long enough for them to fuel the plane to get away. That's the point, right? Yes. But yeah. I don't know if that's—I don't know if that actually comes across very well in this— and also, it made me wonder about the Langoliers' own consciousness, because they seem to be, they're time creatures, right? They just eat time. But mm. do they also have sentience? Because they seem to know and recognize Toomey based on a fake fable that his father told him. And I don't quite know if those two things yeah. work together. It's hard to know what, because that's the thing, is like, do they recognize Toomey, or do they just see him moving and chase him down to eat him off camera and does he even delay them at all because while this one is attacking him the other ones are still eating everything so i don't think it saved any time yeah no they delay two of a thousand right yeah (laughs) and and he runs back towards the plane that's i know right right like like he does a crazy forehead run back towards the the people that he's trying to save if he had ran run off into the woods different story run off the other way it's like okay it's funny because not that i think it's it's something that i hate in movies where it's like this person finds out that they whatever it's like the end of uh uh, what was that the m night Shyamalan movie where the kid puts all the glass water out and you find out that's because the aliens hate water like i hate that sort of thing but sadly that would have been better as a result of why he's saving them like there's something specific about him and that's why they need him but it's just like Oh, we just needed a body. Just have all have all hungry go out there in delay time. Well, that's the yeah. thing is he gets eaten and you're like, well, he's not that far from the planet. He barely delayed them. Like they barely finished. I think they're just finishing fueling now. And as a little like in probably five minutes, they're all looking out the window of the planes they are trying to take off. 
And the Langoliers are like eating the airport like it's Swiss cheese now because there's just like holes all over it. And as they're looking at someone says, oh, look, they're attacking the airport because that's where Toomey was. And that's how why we still needed him. And but I was just like, wait, what? Like it none of yeah, it, like because he yeah. wasn't in the airport. He died on the tarmac. I yeah, to your point, Jordan, it's like, like their reasoning behind how Toomey delayed the Langoliers never made any sense in how this was made. You know, it's it might be a question of scale, right? If they keep talking about how like these things sound like termites, they sound like um, rice krispies. Those are small things. If they had made the Langoliers actually tiny, right? These tiny balls of teeth. And then you'd need a thousand of them to eat a human. Right. Then it makes sense, right? Like it would take them a long time to eat through something. They could still be menacing. They could still chase. They could still be all teeth and violence. But when Toomey runs off into the distance, a whole swarm follow him. Right. As opposed to just two giant ones that only take like two bites. Two bites and he's done. Two bite brownie. (laughs) um no that's a good point actually that probably would have been way more effective actually because it would have felt like you were it would have made maybe more sense they were chasing him down but it took them longer to get there at any rate the major point though and not to to belabor this too much is that the tension that they're going for of are they going to make it out in time with this plane and him delaying them you don't get that sense at all as a viewer there's no sense that they're not going to make it out there's no sense that there's any tension at all it's just oh here's more stuff happening because to your something you said earlier luke the actors aren't giving performances that justify those feelings in a viewer they're all just like look at that over there toomey's getting eaten anyways how's that plane (laughs) you know what i liked about that though jordan Uh, everyone else is on the plane while toomey gets eaten but not old laurel the teacher she just stands there and watches him get eaten like a sicko yeah (laughs) but and also with no reaction she's just like interesting Uh look at that yeah that's not something you see every day. Somebody has to watch everything in real time, whether it's the audience or one of the characters. <laughs> everything must take its full duration. The only time she reacts is Nick comes out and grabs her, and then she is like, "Oh, I'm terrified now." I'm like, "Oh, she's faking it because someone caught her." <laughs> she's just like, "This is what I want to happen to me when I get to Boston: just terribly murdered." <laughs> I wonder if originally that's where the uh, commercial break was. You just end with Pinochet Pinoche screaming. <laughs> commercial break you know go to denny's and then back to her just watching right 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 and then gets pulled away so it took two minutes but it was just commercials right i mean could be the case let's let's get back on track though uh the plane has finished fueling they're taxiing out onto the runway the langoliers are like gobbling holes in the runway and captain angles forced to steer around them and it's so weird because for the most part the langoliers seem to be ignoring this plane they're like eating up the airport and we cut away to finally Bob Jenkins comes back to because I guess we need some more pontification happening in this show. And he gets to give us a monologue about the Langoliers where he says, quote, now we know what happens to today when it becomes yesterday. It waits for the timekeepers of eternity who clean the mess up in the most efficient way possible. And I'm like, eating it? Is that the most efficient way possible? I love, though, the timekeepers of eternity. I wish that's what this was called. I know. Yeah. So they were just like, this is a great line from the book. We better make time for someone to monologue by himself on the plane about it. Well, also, we've been paying Dean Stockwell to be on set for the last two weeks. And maybe he should say something before yeah. we wrap <laughs> this thing up. Um, finally, the Langlers don't quite finish the airport. It just kind of collapses. And that's when they finally start chasing the plane. And it's, it's insane. Like, we've talked about how the Langlers... Don't, it doesn't really make sense. There's not enough threat toward that plane. And when they finally do take notice of the plane, two Langoliers just 
fly up alongside of the windows of the plane and like look inside and they fly around like they're so fast they're faster than the plane these langlers fly in front of the plane so that captain ingle can see them and like they look at him and he waves and he waves his arms and says go away go away and they let the plane <laughs> take they off do. Like, whoa, like it was crazy, right? Like there's nothing, there was no tension because clearly the Langoliers could eat the plane at any minute. They were just what, choosing not to? Yeah, there's a whole like east-west thing that happens in the book where like because they're heading back towards the rift, they're heading in back into a little bit of time. Like the Langoliers kind of work via the, the Greenwich Mean Time and then go go west, I guess. So there was that sense of it, like they were outrunning it, but in the in the show it didn't matter they were just like it, it made no sense like the langoliers could so. clearly flew up next to the plane flew in front of the plane like they could have eaten at any time it just didn't yeah. happen no anyway they, they do finally take off we get to see an aerial shot of what's left of the world which is just like there's like an island in a black void that is though it's left of the runway and it's all kind of collapsing into this black void which is i guess this is what the world looks like as the langoliers wrap up time as the eternity's gatekeepers <laughs> It, like GoldenEye is what it looks like. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the graphics do look like you're playing N64's GoldenEye. Um, yeah. And they take off above the clouds, which I guess that the Langoliers don't eat clouds. The clouds are allowed to stay. Yep. And that's it. They are. I'm like, well, they did it. They escaped the Langoliers. And I look at the time left in this movie, and I'm like, <laughs> there are still 30 minutes left in this movie. What is going to happen now? Yeah. 30 minutes of flying in real time. And that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> um. And that's kind of what it is, is that we, we get a basically 30 minutes of epilogue here. If you're wondering if Albert the violinist and Betney the teenage drug addict were going to make out, they are. We know his choices. Um, Nick explains finally why he was going to Boston, which was to kill the mistress of a powerful man to send him a warning. Yeah. And he's since then, though, after meeting Langler's decided he's going to quit his job and not be a hired assassin anymore. Captain Angle reveals why his marriage ended badly with his ex-wife. It was because he wanted kids and she didn't. And then he did something so bad he wishes he could apologize for it, but then never clarifies what the bad thing he did was. Yeah. He hits her. He's he's in a domestic abuser. Oh, is that is that what happens? That is, I assumed he yeah. killed a bunch of children and brought them home and dressed <laughs> them up. That was the horrible thing. And that's what they couldn't get back. I honestly, the way mm. it was handled, I thought he cheated on her. Right. I didn't, no, he... he he hits her in the book. Why didn't they just go with... Why didn't they just explain what happened? It was so weird for them to be like, and I did something bad, but I'm not going to say what. Yeah. Because it's David Morrison. They're like, ooh, ooh that's going to be tough acting for you, David. Don't worry about it. Just allude to the something happening in this show. And, of course, Dinah gets her closure because we get to learn from her that she saw the world through Toomey's eyes. So she's pretty pleased with that. So guess what? <laughs> she's pretty pleased with that i'll just gonna die now on this plane before i get home so dinah yeah. dinah dies yeah and this cool the school teacher says i can live with that <laughs> what does that mean what i like what i really liked about dinah's death is she gives a monologue about i saw the world through uh, toomey's eyes and it was beautiful so it's okay for me to die and then she dies and the camera lingers on her face, and they replay the monologue she just gave in voiceover over her dead face. I'm just like, it hasn't been 30 seconds since she said these same lines. Yeah. Oh, also, the o- again, the only time we see her look through Toomey's eyes... Everyone looks is- like a wax figure. Yeah, and it's like, uh, what? 
you knew you were building to that. Even if you didn't write a script, there was already a piece written for you. You knew you were building to this. Figure it out. They should have been like, she's like, well, I got to live a long life with my vision. Wait a minute. <laughs> and then she dies. Um, at any rate, so every all these characters get to close out things they mentioned at the beginning of the last episode. They finally reach this rip time rip, which looks pretty cool, actually. You want to describe this time rip they get to? The sideways vagina? Is that what you're <laughs> oh, jeez. I mean, that would not be my first stop, but... Oh, it's it is like a rip in time, like a long, slender opening, and it's very colorful and bright. It's uh, it looks you know it's got that aurora borealis look, but also kind of looks like something maybe from like two thousand one, a space odyssey. Steve, what do you think it looks like? Are you disagreeing with me, Luke, or agreeing with me? I'm confused. <laughs> I mean, I did you see the nub at one end? Oh my god, no, that's too much. You you can cut that out if you want. No, that's damn. Well, this this will all be used against you in a court of law. <laughs> Uh, knowing where the clitoris is is never going to be used against me, just for the record. Yes. It's it's very colorful, uh, little rip in time they're heading to. And this is funny, too, because this is where Bob Jenkins really does get a comeback. Is he's, he immediately gets uncomfortable. He's like, I think we're missing something. Something feels wrong. And I won't lie. At this point in the movie, I just was like, this movie's over. Like, why is it still happening? I had forgotten that, like, there was any reason they couldn't fly back into the time rip with myself. I was just like, just get to it. Fly through it. I had a, a, a silly moment of hope here that there was going to be something really good happening. And at least for me, what I was hoping was we'd gone through this whole journey and they had essentially won. And just before they fly through the time, because they're hoping they're going to fly through the time, time uh, of vagina yeah, and everything will be fine. But what, you know, he starts going, guys, I just realized we shouldn't do that. And what I was hoping was they were going to go, oh, no, this is a terrible decision. Go through and all die. And that's how this was going to end. <laughs> and that we would just have this thing like, guess what? Like, you were never going to win. Everything you did was for nothing. And that's because things suck sometimes. And now, maybe not a great ending for viewers, but I would have been like pumping my fist in excitement. I thought that'd be just a great like, guess what? Life sucks. <laughs> I would have thought it was great. You really wanted that nihilism. Don't you think that'd have been a good ending? Not really. <laughs> no? <laughs> I mean, I not that so. it's a good ending as it is. but Yeah. I think a half an hour, uh, like a Twilight Zone type ending, absolutely, right? Some, you know, sometimes things don't work out. After four hours and not getting to see Bronson get eaten, no, let's have mm. this happy, happy ending. What I really want is some sort of jumping freeze frame. Hopefully, Luke, that's where Luke <laughs> is taking us. They all, they all give each other five and we five, freeze five on months. it. Yeah. Um, what what happens here is Bob Jenkins, as he's saying constantly, something feels wrong. He realizes that old hungry man's taking a nap because that guy's great. He can nap anywhere. He's he's having a great time. Uh, and he realizes when they went through the time rip initially, they were all asleep, which means they got to go back to sleep if they're going to survive the time rip, which I also had forgotten was important to the plot. Um, Just another from the book moment. I thought that Stephen King would appear in this, but there's actually a character in the book that they forget about during the entire plot of, like, during all the action because it's a drunk guy who's sleeping at the back of the plane. <laughs> and that's the guy that gives Dean Stockwell the idea that they need to go back to sleep. And I for sure thought that was going to be Stephen King because he doesn't get off the plane when Toomey goes on his rampage. He never sees the Langoliers. He's just unconscious for the whole thing and then wakes up at the end. That's very funny. Why do they cut that character? out of all the characters um but yeah so basically there's this weird moment of like i guess tension where captain angle has to veer the plane away from the rift and then 
one of those elements they brought up, we mentioned it last episode, Jordan, but this thing that was brought up probably in the first five minutes of this movie some three hours ago is that the captain had to deal with a pressure leak on the last plane he was on. And (laughs) that is the solution to their current problem is they'll just lower the pressure on the plane till they all pass out and they'll be able to fly through. And of course, what that means, though, is one person will need to stay conscious in order to turn the pressure back on before they enter the rift. And someone's going to have to volunteer to die. Yeah, and it's old Nick. It's his, it's his way of making amends for his many, many, many political assassinations. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it makes up for it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Laurel, of course, is not happy because they made plans to go on a date in Boston. <laughs> Once again, it just is not working out for her love life. But uh, Nis- Nick tasks her with a mission when he returns to she returns to regular time is to visit his father in Ireland, I guess, or England to convince him that he was going to quit his job after all. His father, a man that the old folks still call the gaffer. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean coach? That's coach or something? Or no, is that gipper. Gi- that's the gipper. What the hell's a gaffer? Uh, he was working on the lights. Okay, right. <laughs> Um, and he, he tells her that when he goes to visit his father, he's to, he's to tell his father, she's to tell his father that I tried to atone for what happened outside the church in Belfast. Remind him about the time I bought the daisies. It's just such time wasting. It's like, no one cares, man. No one cares. Get into the void. There's so much, there's so much information she's passed along here to tell this dad that we get no background for it. You know, we can infer that something, he murdered somebody and that I guess he bought daisies one time and that'll convince his dad that he was going to quit his job. Would you remember that though? If like, like, let's say Steve's dying and, and then Steve says to you, Luke, Hey, remember the daisies at this place? You're not going to remember all that stuff. You end up showing up and go, Oh, uh, Steve said, uh, he loves you. (laughs) I will. Yep. I will say, literally five minutes later, as she's falling asleep, we get a we get a cutaway to her to her mumbling all this stuff so she could remember to say it when she gets there, right? And what she mumbles is she's like, "Behind the church in Belfast." And I'm like, "That is not what he said. He did not say behind that. You've you've already messed it up." <laughs> um, but yes, this is basically everything sorted out. Everyone's promptly passing out as they get to the rift. Nick's left to, like, stare into it and yell, oh, my God, it's so beautiful, as he evaporates and his watch falls to the floor. Also, it's not that beautiful. He's like, it's so beautiful. Like, it's not that beautiful. It's like the ending of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Isn't that what the guy says, too, when he sees the ghost spirit thing? He's like, it's so beautiful. And then it goes, dang, 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 and big scary teeth. I was like, I don't know if that was that beautiful either. Bronson was on set that day yelling at Nick, being like, more, give more. It's so beautiful. <laughs> um, and the effect of, of what happens when you die in the rift was a little, he just like, he just fades out of existence. It was, I was, I was hoping for something cool. He has a Jedi death. Boop. Watch. Uh, when everyone wakes up, they're approaching LAX. Of course, uh, the captain can't get anyone on the radio to answer him, and Laurel looks out the window and points out that L.A. on the ground is completely empty. Bum, bum, bum. Which... No no picture of that, though. This would have been... I would have been okay if they didn't die there, but they got back to... They still weren't forward in time. Like, they still, had, like, were trapped in time. But that's not what's happening, because they, they land the plane as it runs out of fuel, and they... They exit the plane. I've never seen a way of exiting this plane before, but they're apparently in this cockpit. There is a uh, ladder made out of chains that you can crawl out of the cockpit. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's mm-hmm. a new one to me. The captain says, this time we'll take that way out. You know it, what it is, is that they should just take the same escape route. But I think what they're implying is that they left the stairs, right? Or that thing has gone. Yeah, once you gone. inflate it, you can't inflate it again. 
But I think what it is is like for the show, they were just like, well, we can't afford to do that twice, so we'll, they'll just climb a ladder. <laughs> the world of L.A. is still empty, but this time it doesn't quite sound as empty. There's a, there's a strange electrical humming in the air instead of Rice Krispies and milk. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, Bob Jenkins has figured out that he can smell things and has a theory about what's happening, but he doesn't want to tell them yet. Let's go for a little walk first so I can pontificate mm-hmm. for you for a while. <laughs> but real quick, they're going to choose very quickly to lean up against a wall because they don't want to get in the way of people appearing, which is what we're going to see in a couple minutes. I don't think that was the best spot for them, though. You know like, what, what if like someone was just hanging against a wall? You don't want to talk about how they go eat a sandwich, but they won't let the hungry man eat his sandwich? All <laughs> uh, right, sure. <laughs> That's my favorite part is they go and they open sandwiches. And they're like, these sandwiches taste great. And the hungry guy who's been dying to eat a sandwich all movie goes to take a bite. I think Bob Jenkins slaps it out of his hand and says, <laughs> no, not yet. And he's like, looks so sad. Glad we got that in. That hungry man's my favorite part of this whole movie. Everything he does entertains me. But yes, uh, Bob explains to them that they're actually now not in the past anymore. They've traveled into the future, Jordan. The future. Mm -hmm. Where I guess the world creates a perfect world for the people coming in the present to inhabit for. How long? Like, do we exist in that world for but a moment? Like, are we making infinite worlds that, like, then get eaten by Langoliers? Or do you get to, like, exist on that planet for, like, five minutes before we move past it? I wonder if it's just, it's the concept of potential. Like, it's the manifestation of possibility, right? They've somehow, it's less a time warp than it is some sort of, some rip in in space-time, maybe... I don't know. I don't know how it plays in the multiverse theory or what. Um, you know, it, it's not a good. It's not a good anything. It's not a good book. It's not a good show. It's not a good movie. But Jordan, this is your favorite part. They hide against the wall because they can sense the present is coming to take over this world. I know why they do it because you get a somewhat okay effect of people start dissolving into the world as they catch up with time. But they were like, let's lean against the wall so. No one's going to, like, phase in while we're standing and, and make some sort of horrible tri-person monster or something. God, that would have been entertaining. Go on the tarmac. Yeah. Then there's no one in there. I also was just like, yeah. you're really taking a risk that some guy's not leaning against that wall looking at his phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just your legs are luggage now all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what I do like, though, is as they as they merge back with time, um, uh, they freak out some kid and her dad who are just, like, staring at them. I was praying that those people would be anybody just some cameo from someone that would be like it was totally worth it to see young jerry o'connell you know be a dad carrying some young elijah wood around like just anybody at all so hold on you were hoping the cameo would be jerry o'connell and young elijah wood i don't know weird that's very weird i was gonna say tony randall Um, Jerry O'Connell, though, Stephen King universe. Mm. Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, what is that? Stand, Stand by, by me? me. Yeah. Yeah. Based on the body. Yeah. Just anything. Anybody would be like, oh, my God, it was worth it to watch two hours of this godforsaken thing. Um, but yes, they're now they're now back in regular time. They're, they, they've escaped the Langoliers. They've escaped the future. And they're standing around celebrating. And Bob's like, should we go tell the authorities what happened? And Captain Angle's like, nah, let's go get some fresh <laughs> air first. And we watch them run down a hallway and leap into the air in freeze frame to celebrate their victory. So excited. We did it. We did it. It was a freeze frame at the end. But they call themselves the new people, right? The new people. Yeah. That's the sequel. <laughs> the new people. That, the, the sequel. Uh, the sequel novella. The sequel, yeah. 
So I know I've talked a lot about the uh, the source material here. Uh, I did go back. I didn't actually read it. I listened to it as an audiobook, and it was read by Willem Dafoe. Oh wow! <laughs> um, he does a better job of playing every single character, including a young blind girl, <laughs> than all of these actors combined in their entire careers. I was hoping you were going to say it was Belky because that's what he does a lot of audiobooks now. Oh, really? Yeah, I was hoping he was going to get a second kick at the can there. No. Will Wheaton, maybe, but no, it's Willem Dafoe. He does a hell of a job, actually. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> oh, man. So. That's that's interesting. I mean, I almost want to listen yeah. to it now. <laughs> it's still not good. I said almost. But it is. Yeah. <laughs> there are some interesting parts. I think losing out on all of the insights into the characters and why they're doing anything at all really hurts this god-awful television movie. I will say, uh, this is my final note on this whole thing, and then I guess we can move on unless you guys have anything left to say, is one thing I noted, particularly as I was getting to the end here, is just I was like, there's so much, there's so many characters, there's so much potential cannon fodder, and so few people die in this movie. For the number of characters, I thought it was going to be like, by the end, just people dropping like flies, like that kind of, like there was going to be the tension of just like people dying, but almost everybody makes it back alive. You're right. Cause that's an, another almost interesting ending. I say almost interesting that they went through all this thing and let's say it's Nick, Nick survives. And at the end, everyone else died. And he's just like, now I'm alone. No one understands what I went through because everyone's gone, but I made it back. But was it worth it? I mean, there's something there again. And maybe I'm, I'm asking too much for this, what probably was something Stephen King whipped off while he was standing in line at the post office. And uh, then the filmmakers decided, let's do as many hours on as possible. But I get the feeling after watching all this of like, well, I guess that was that. Everyone kind of made it through except for Dinah. And like, we all wanted Dinah to get stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was Dinah. It was Nick. It was Toomey, but that was obvious. Toomey was always going to die. And then it was uh, right. Die and Cast Worker, man. So four people. Oh, that's true. But right. nonetheless, with that many characters, I truly thought in part one, I'm like, oh, in part two, it's going to be not a bloodbath because it's TV, but I assumed we were going to like start like losing a lot of characters. People were going to die. Langlers were going to chase them down. But in the end, it is just like everyone kind of gets out relatively unscathed. And the people who do die are basically sacrificing themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is really the issue with with king adaptations right like they've taken no risks here they've only cut out the best parts because all of them are are internal and you get four hours of unnecessary television you know if you want to cut this if you want to make this good you cut it down to half an hour or you adapt it in a way that works for your medium and like they haven't done that and you know this is this is not a great piece of king to start with right this is a kind of a rough time for him you know this is the maybe the peak or just at the end of his drug and alcohol addiction he kind of gets clean around the late 80s early 90s um but i mean the same year just the year before this he wrote misery oh, right? yeah. which is one of his his best works and one of the best movies based on it right which takes liberties yeah. with the work right and they haven't taken any liberties with this they've not given it any style they've not added extra characters killed off extra characters they've done nothing so yeah it's it's bad it, this is bad throughout and and unnecessarily bad too to to have to watch this over two nights it just it makes no sense i hope whoever greenlit it has been fired and just ostracized from the industry because it was a it was a bad choice all, all right steve on that note why don't you rate this for us well, let's get into ratings out of kings what do we rate now is it is it uh... <laughs> it's instead of 10 stars <laughs> 
10 stars? It's out of 10 Tommy Knockers. Tommy knock. Okay, well, I was going to mention the Tommy Knockers because if you're going to continue with this, the Tommy Knockers has an equally terrible. Don't spoil it. TV Don't spoil series. it. We're going to watch it someday. I'm not going to. Oh, you are. Okay, good. Well, I'm welcome to come back for that. So, wait a second. I inv- that's me inviting myself. <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to come back for that. All right, Steve. Steve, uh, what do you want to write this? Now, am I just rating the second part? Yes, please. Just the second part? One out of ten. <laughs> One out of ten. Wow. Ah. Yeah. Uh, I am going to give it a three because I was very happy. Like, I actually, for the first half of this, I was like, at least something's happening. Like, the girl gets stabbed. The plane's working again. The Langoliers are coming. They arrive. They're, you know, all of that is hokey and not great, but at least it was action-packed. Like, it felt like there was a lot of movement compared to the previous episode where nothing happened. And then we got to the end of it, and there was still half hour left. And I'm just like, there's nothing left to say, you guys. Like, all of the excitement of this movie was in the la- was in 30 minutes, but there's an hour. There's like 30 minutes before that and 30 minutes after that with nothing. So I, I think this is a three for me. I think you might have been doing this podcast too long because you said, I was happy, the girl got stabbed, and you called the Langoliers action-packed. And I just, I think well, there's, your standards there's like a, might there's have like been... a half hour where things happen, where there were, nothing happened for the hour and a half before that. What did you rate? What did you rate the first half then? Oh, we gave it a very high mark. Well, then that makes no sense. I don't understand. I don't understand. But okay, three out of ten. Three out of ten. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a four out of ten. I don't even what? think it's that good. You know what it was? It's greatest sin is it's just boring and pointless. But it's not like offensive in any way. It's just something that didn't need to be made like this. It's like, hey, that thirty second commercial. What if it was an hour? That's what this is. It's like, I don't know. Why does this thing exist? I don't know. Who cares? Four to ten. What hurts me here is that you guys are giving Langoliers Part 2 similar scores to the Man and Machine episodes that we watched together. <laughs> and it just, it, it hurts me on a deep level. I, I, can we go back and retroactively give those tens? I would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode with the Langoliers. Steve, thank you so much for joining us for this one. It was a pleasure to have you back. Guys, It was the pleasure was all mine. It's always a joy to uh, speak with you about even the worst television movies and series. So please uh, call on me again whenever you need someone to hate something much more than both of you do. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and if you have some thoughts on the Langoliers, you can email us at gmail.com.hotmail. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Uh, it's continuumdrag at gmail.com. There we go. I got there. And of course, on Instagram and Twitter, you're going to get to see the Langoliers in all their living glory. Uh, the tags for those are at Continuum Drag on either, uh, either Instagram or Twitter. And that wraps it up. Jordan, good to see you. And listener, <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. I think in the spirit of your podcast, you guys should have a Hotmail address. <laughs> Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Humes. <laughs>